Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Bring, bring it bring it to the Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Smith. Here to talk about Burnley today, and obviously, you will definitely remember me from the Bundesliga podcast <laughs> on the same channel that you definitely all listen to every week. Yeah, and that's it. It's just the two of us today. Uh, double <laughs> duty from both of us. Uh, we hope to have a couple of other guests on, and neither were able to actually make it at the last minute. So uh, you're going to hear a lot from us. So if you don't like that, uh, <laughs> too bad. Sorry. Yeah. Um, they're but... dead to us, so they're never going to be invited back. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Are we defaulting to our tone on the Bundesliga show? Yes. Hopefully it'll be fun for you guys. Um, So obviously the big news this week uh, is that Liverpool were crowned champions uh, after Chelsea, who seemed to love doing this kind of thing, uh, held uh, City. Well, it wasn't to a draw, held City to a loss. People say that, right? Um, So uh, anyway, Chelsea getting a win prevents um, City from having any other chances. Liverpool win the title before playing City uh, next. So First in 30 years, obviously a massive achievement for Liverpool after all of that time, now currently holding the Champions League, the uh, Super Cup, and the Premier League title all concurrently. Pretty impressive stuff on the whole. What was your initial reaction to Liverpool winning the title and in that kind of way? Well, firstly, I was shocked because this has obviously come out of nowhere. Didn't see Liverpool winning the league at all. (laughs) Um... Really turned it on after the restart. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No, obviously it's pretty much been on the card since certainly Christmas um, so it's just been a matter of time Liverpool fans obviously had all the worry that the season might get null and voided um, I'm not sure that was ever realistic but I'm sure they're just relieved to get it done um, obviously it's an extraordinary team um, at one point it looked like they were going to do an Arsenal and be unbeaten all season couldn't do that obviously because of the might of Watford um, but yeah, a fantastic team. I think they certainly deserve to to be champions. Obviously, it's been a, a long, long wait. Um, I'm not sure people talking about 30 years of hurt is quite accurate when they've won the Champions League a couple of times, won various other cup competitions, been second in the Premier League a few times. It's not exactly been a, a completely barren spell compared to some other clubs. Um, mm. But yeah. Obviously, the fan base has been through a lot. This is the the first full season. They won the league the year of Hillsborough, of course, but they haven't won it since. So there's been a lot of hurt and pain in the fan base. And I think it's been a a bit cathartic that they've been able to celebrate this title. Um, It's a bit of a shame that some of the fans have celebrated it in the way that they have. There was a lot of fuss over here um, with fans being told not to congregate at Anfield and things because of social distancing and coronavirus and all that and 
obviously fans went to Anfield to celebrate. Um, someone also set a firework off at the Liver building, which is one of the most famous historic buildings in Liverpool, set it on fire. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think it's been ideal the way that the title's been celebrated, but I certainly don't begrudge fans their success, even though Liverpool fans can be extremely annoying. Yeah, I was a little surprised by the in-person celebrations because there were a lot of stories about um, how Liverpool fans were being persecuted just because they were the ones winning the title yep, yep, they, yep. that they knew not to celebrate like that. And then, yeah, obviously... there was a lot of people like within the football industry saying, how dare they? How dare they suggest that football fans don't know how to behave? How mm. dare they? And then obviously everyone went to the ground and stayed up all night drinking and partying and then did it the next day as well. So, yeah, um, yeah I think football fans are just a bit silly sometimes they could have waited and had the party in a few weeks time when it's safer to do so yeah but 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 worth noting and we mentioned this at the same time i don't think it was ever about liverpool i think it was always just the 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 situation of a club having not won it for 30 years all of a sudden winning it would engender that and i think it probably would have happened the same way at any other club every club has those fans but uh yeah definitely not a good look in their celebrations there um for me it was uh Kind of disappointing to see Liverpool win the title, not to offend a whole bunch of people who only follow me because of how frequently I show up on the Anfield Index. Um, <laughs> but just because the the trajectory was that Pochettino's Tottenham had a head start on Klopp's Liverpool at the same time. Um, and we continued to finish above them in the table, and we had those incredible teams um, from 14 through 17, and then obviously had had the Champions League run last year, but but the domestic campaign wasn't nearly as good. But I think there were a lot of similarities between the two with the high pressing, uh, really attractive football, both of them all of a sudden getting much better at the back um, when Wanyama really got into his best for us, obviously. Liverpool when they got um, Van Dyke and then Allison in, in consecutive windows. So I, I think I... For a while there was viewing them in, in a similar place, but then obviously going out and buying players in key positions is something that Liverpool did, and then Tottenham didn't sign anybody for 18 sure. months, and yeah. it really divided the two. So um, obviously a little more painful also because they beat us in the Champions League final, but it, it's really a reminder to me of what Tottenham could have gotten to under Pochettino. Um, had we had more squad depth, had luck fallen our way a little bit better. Like Leicester's fairy tale season coincides with exactly our best season ever. That's pretty unfortunate. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's just it's just a little frustrating in that way. Obviously, I know loads of Liverpool fans have, have worked with a lot of them, have gone on shows with a lot of them, and, and more than happy for all of them, but can't help but feel this kind of like sorrow inside, um, knowing that yeah. it just if things had bounced a little bit differently. Uh, maybe not this year, but over the last five or so years that it could have been taught. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a triumph of recruitment, isn't it? Because for sure, I think the the net spend in the Klopp era is only actually about ninety million pounds. They yeah, sold extremely sold. well, so Coutinho near enough paid for Van Dijk and Allison with a bit extra thrown in. So mm -hmm. they invested that money extremely well. They've managed to get rid of players who weren't good enough by selling most of them to Bournemouth for ridiculous money. <laughs> so you've got your Jordan Ibes, your um, Adam Smith, was it? Um, Dominic Solanke, probably like £50, £60 million pound for those three who were never ever going to be good enough for Liverpool, arguably not for the Premier League. Um, so, yeah, I think the way that they've built that squad up has been a sort of blueprint that other clubs might ought to follow. It just shows that you don't necessarily have to be a Man City and spending £200 million on fullbacks in a summer. 
and that you can do it in a more sensible, restrained way. Um, and I think they'll be able to keep the team together as well. Obviously, when you build a team that's successful, there's a lot of fear about players getting plucked away. But Liverpool are the European champions. They're the world champions. If you're a Liverpool player now, why would you think about leaving? Mm. What are you going to win somewhere else that you can't win at Liverpool right now? So, yeah, there's been speculation about Sadio Mane and Marcelo, Real Madrid, inevitably, because that's probably the only step up at this time. Um, but I, I think they'll keep the team together. And the question is, can they then refresh it? If you look at the Liverpool squad, I don't think it's actually that deep. Some key positions, yeah. they don't really have a lot of cover. There's not really any cover for right back or left back. You basically, what James Milner is the cover for both of those positions. Um, Joe Gomez, mid- I suppose. Yeah, Joe Gomez, Joe Gomez is probably first-choice centre-back now, so you wouldn't necessarily want to use him at right-back. Um, the front three, obviously, there's there's covering players like Origi and Minamino, but big drop-off in quality from the front three. So you could say that about any elite team, but if they had a couple of big injuries, that could affect them. Um, I think this would be a really good time for them to invest again. Obviously, it's not going to be the ideal summer to do that because of the impacts on finances of coronavirus. And I think Klopp's indicated that he feels a bit uncomfortable spending a lot of money because of uh, the club furloughed staff initially before having to roll back on that because of a lot of outcry. They were they were looking like they were going to be in for Timo Vernon seemingly pulled out of that deal because it wasn't going to be a good look to spend money. Um, but I think you always want to strengthen from a position of strength don't you? you don't want to be Man City this year where they lost Vincent Company, didn't buy a replacement Laporte got injured, their title hopes were pretty much over straight away so yeah I think um, it'd be really interesting to see what Liverpool do in the market now because I think a couple more players could really help strengthen that squad depth and give them a better chance of turning this into a dynasty which everyone seems to be assuming is what's going to happen even though a year ago people say Man City were the best team in Premier League history so (laughs) (laughs) it's funny how these things turn around yeah and and as far as the dynasty goes I mean a lot of those Liverpool players aren't aren't on the the early half of their careers not saying any of them are particularly old but no exactly I was looking at this the front three are all 28 29 so they're Mm -hmm. in their prime but they're not going to get any better than they are now Right, and as you said, there's not a whole lot of players behind them that are younger. Um, obviously, Origi, Shakiri, Minamino, you mentioned, but uh, you mentioned the recruiting and some of those like high-profile plug-and-play players, but they also, I don't want to say got lucky because they, they obviously have a really good analytics team, but Robertson and Gomez being as good as they were, obviously huge bringing in Matip for a, a free to replace Lovren, who can't help but concede goals every time he plays. Um, Alexander-Arnold just happening to be a generational right-back prospect coming up through the system. Like the, A lot of things bounced the right way, and they were also very smart and also had a very good manager and were also very talented, kind of all at the same time. So, yeah, absolutely yeah. credit to them for, for putting it all together at a time and at, and at the right time, because they could have had this exact same team last year, which you know, they largely did, and have not won the title. Um so yeah, just just being able to capitalize when that moment was there, which is obviously something, for example, that Tottenham failed to do, um, you know, certainly deserves credit on their end. Yeah, I don't I don't see the the dynasty thing coming though, as you say, and yeah, they have just outright said that they aren't going to buy Sancho because he would cost too much money. They didn't try to buy Werner um, when it really came down to the getting out the wallet part <laughs> of the transfer. Um, but yeah, again, credit to them, credit to the fans, congratulations. 
try to not celebrate like a whole bunch of crazies out in public, but uh, <laughs> congrats. Um, we'll go from there to the very other end of the table. None of the bottom five clubs have recorded a win since the restart. None of them. One draw, and that was the Aston Villa draw with Sheffield United, where they should have lost, but for the first time ever, uh, <laughs> Eagle Eye or whatever is running it failed to work. Um, so of all of them, I think for me, I've always thought Bournemouth would be the ones to turn around because I've largely believed in Andy Howe. I think they have a lot of talented players, the former Liverpool draws to the side, um, but not really confident having seen how they're going. Obviously, no Ryan Fraser. David Brooks got hurt already, um, and I think... I think Josh King pulled up with something, but I don't think that was too serious. But they're who I previously thought it was. Not really sure where I'm landing now. Which of those kind of bottom relegation fight teams do you think might be able to string together a couple wins and get out of the relegation battle? Yeah, I think it's tricky. I think what we've seen since the restart is that results seem to be more predictable. Like the, just the better team seems to just win more often than not. Um, mm. I think we've seen that in some of the other leagues as well. Like the shot results seem like I don't know if it's the fans not being there. Or shot results just don't really seem to be happening at the moment. Um, and we've even seen teams like Sheffield United seem to be regressing a little bit. Um, so it, it does seem to just be the better players are just getting the job done at the minute. So on those grounds, I would have also looked at Bournemouth. Um, it's largely the same squad that's been comfortably mid-table for the last few seasons. Um, in Callum Wilson, they've got a player who's been a reliable scorer, and I think you need that if you're going to get out of trouble. But Wilson's had a fairly terrible season. I think you're right to point out Fraser being absent is a, a big disadvantage to them, even though he's been he's been poor this season as well. I would have put David Brooks being back as a big plus for them, but if he's injured again, that's another problem. Um, and they don't seem to have improved. I think the break could have been at a good time for Bournemouth. They seem to be plummeting, but they don't appear to have improved, and that's got to be a concern for them. Um, Norwich, I think most people are assuming have gone, even though they're only a couple of wins where they don't look able to do what they need to do to get away from it. Villa, I think the goalkeeper is a massive problem for Villa. Um, obviously, as a Burnley fan, I know a lot about Tom here, and I think he was an outstanding signing for them, and if he'd stayed fit, I'd have fancied their chances. But the guy they're playing at the minute, he's absolutely terrible. They've got Pepe Reina on the bench. I'm not sure what they're mm. doing. Like, why, why have they gone out and signed Pepe Reina, and then he's sitting on the bench behind this absolute nobody? Who, who carried a ball into his own net. <laughs> he carried one into his own net, and then against Wolves the other day, today, I've got no idea what day matches run <laughs> so much football on. He threw one straight at an attacker and then missed an open goal. Like, it seems like every game he's committing a massive mistake. Um so Pepe Reina has to come into that team to give them any chance whatsoever. But I said this at the start of the season I think Villa are this year's form. They spent way too much money on mm. players that you haven't played in the Premier League. Um probably spent a hundred million on players and if you look at the squad try and pick out players who would stay in the Premier League next season. You're looking at Jack Grealish, who was already there, and Tyrone Mings, and that's probably it. Um, so I don't fancy Villa to get out of it. West Ham, Moyes has saved them before. I think he can probably do it again. Um, obviously, West Ham fans don't really like Moyes. His style of football isn't great, but I hate the too good to go down thing because that was said a lot when West Ham went down 
four. <laughs> um, so they're absolutely not too good to go down because they've proven that they can manage to get relegated when they've got no rights to be getting relegated. Um, but I think Moyes will probably carve out the results that they need and they do have players good enough to win matches. Um, so probably between Watford and Bournemouth for the last spot for me. Um, having seen Watford play against us on whatever day it was, again, absolutely no idea. Some days ago, um, they were appalling, showed absolutely no goal threat and looked pretty rubbish at the back as well. Mm. So if you keep playing like that, I think they're in massive trouble. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's probably not too controversial, but I would say between Watford and Bournemouth for the last spot and Villa and Norwich are goners. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And Bournemouth and West Ham, I think, are pretty easily the two most talented down there. Um, but don't see both of them surviving. You mentioned Watford. <laughs> and I know uh, the Watford talk guys that, that from the Rookery End ones um, were, were mentioning earlier today that uh, they've been in the Premier League five years and have yet to sign a good uh, center back. And that is absolutely true. Their defense has been terrible the entire time they've been up. And either the midfield or the attack in alternating years has been good enough to keep them up. And I think this is the first year where it's it's really not. I mean, the just the craziness that happened with Andre Gray getting two other teammates uh, to have yeah. to enter quarantine because um, yeah, they held a party. Nuts. Like, it's, it's imagine just doing insane. that when your team's in relegation danger. And Troy Deeney has spoken so well about the risks to footballers. Yeah, and he didn't want to go back to training at first because he, his daughter's got some sort of condition that means that she's more susceptible. And a lot of the statistics seem to show that black and ethnic minority people are more likely to either catch it or suffer from it or whether it's socioeconomic or whatever there's certainly seemingly a trend there so Troy Deeney was a big advocate for being really careful mm-hmm. and now he's strike partner Andre Gray is throwing a birthday party and inviting all the people <laughs> yeah strike <laughs> so, partner seems generous he doesn't do much striking uh while playing well, yeah, up front. Exactly. So, but yeah so so the attack hasn't been good enough I think the signing of Ishmael Asar was a brilliant one and he, he was finally coming on right as the break hit um, which I don't think helped either. But yeah, uh, in theory, the midfield is pretty good, but Will Hughes, Etienne Capu, and uh, Ducouré, just that's not enough to, to keep you up, I don't think. So yeah, if I had to I go... I think what Watford have got, Deeney is the thing, isn't he? Deeney's yeah. such a big character. Like you were saying with Wilson, leader. like if he leads and, them and scores enough. Yeah, and he will score goals. So if Deeney can deliver, they've got as good a chance as anyone. Um, and obviously... Nigel Pearson has been there and done it. He was Leicester manager, wasn't he, when they pulled yeah. off that miraculous escape. So, yeah, um, he's obviously got history and he knows what needs to be done. So they've got a decent chance. But, um, yeah, having seen them against us, they, they just look like they'd already given up at that point. So a lot of work for them to do. Yep, we'll see. And I'm not sure they have the talent to do it. So for me, Watford, Villa and Norwich. And for you, one of Bournemouth and Watford. Alongside yeah, I'm, Villa I'm on the fence. If I, if I had to say, I'd probably say as it is now, I think Bournemouth is going to really struggle to get out of it. Yeah. And then people will love picking apart their team because they have a lot of young talent. Um, and like eight of them could probably stay in the Premier League. So will be interesting to see in that regard. Uh, obviously, this weekend, also the return of the FA Cup. You've already alluded to how there is infinite football on right now. Uh, so I was just curious how much uh, you've been keeping an eye on the FA Cup and if you're excited to see the world's oldest cup competition, air quotes, TM, uh, return. Um, I, I can't remember. 
<laughs> today, I, I feel like I've watched like 10 <laughs> different games today from various countries, different competitions. I think I've watched all the cup games. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I miss most of Newcastle City because we were recording the Bundesliga podcast, but that seemed exactly how you'd expect just City completely dominant. Um, I think one of the things that has been a shame is the lack of fans with the FA Cup is obviously... I think it's more of an issue than for league games. Mm. If you look at the game between Sheffield United and Arsenal, which was today, was that still today? Feels like it was ages ago. That <laughs> would have been a massive occasion for Sheffield United fans. Yeah. An FA Cup quarterfinal at home, exactly against Arsenal, who have been pretty average. They were around the same place in the league, so they'd have fancied their chances. And I think the lack of fans <laughs> it sort of detracts from the occasion for me. And even the same with the Newcastle City game. City were probably going to win that anyway because they've got such a better team. But a big, passionate crowd at St. James Park can give a team an edge. Um, From what I saw that game, Newcastle just seemed a bit flat. They needed that push from fans. So, yeah, it's a bit of a shame. But I like the Cup. I think it's something different. I'd like it even more if Burnley ever won a match in the Cup. (laughs) Or tried to, (laughs) even. Well, yeah, that would be really nice. Um, a cup run would be nice. I think the semi-finals are essentially four of the biggest six teams in the country, aren't they? So there's not much interest in terms of underdogs having made it. Arsenal probably the underdogs now, and they've won the cup more than anyone recently. So yeah, I think the, the semis will probably be good games, but I really felt the lack of fans today more than I think the Premier League matches. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point because all three matches today could have gone a different way. Even Norwich United yesterday after they had gone level um, and then went into extra time. So yeah, Norwich yeah, exactly. lose 1-2, Sheffield United same, Leicester lose 1-0 after Leicester were the best team in the first half pretty easily. Um, although I think Chelsea had probably the best chance, but Leicester were looking really good and then just the legs started to drag and like you said, maybe that's where the fans lift you up. Um, the penalty call, probably not wrong, but does it get made with 50,000 people in attendance at Newcastle? Exactly. You know, maybe, maybe not. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. I have enjoyed I have enjoyed the FA Cup being back. I don't love what it's done to the Premier League schedule, uh, where it's like a seven-day, one-match week that started yeah, that's on... that's a bit weird. Yeah, it started it's Saturday morning. It's a nightmare be, for... Nightmare for fantasy because I forgot to do my team. So (laughs) having had a couple of really good weeks since the restart, I forgot to do anything to my team and now having a shocker. So oof, rough. Not pleased about that. (laughs) And it'll last till Thursday, so there's not even a reprieve. Exactly. Torture all week. So yeah, probably forget about doing my team again. (laughs) There you go. And then there's like a two day turnaround because then it'll be over Thursday and then restart on Saturday. So yeah, it's 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 uh, really weird how how we're trying to cram all of these things in together, but. As, as far as functionally, I think the, the FA Cup has been handled perfectly fine. Um, as we say, the lack of fans, yeah, probably has way more of an impact in this. And, and in such a, in such tight matches where all of them have been within a goal or two, uh, well, literally all of them within one goal, save Newcastle. But yeah, pretty disappointing there. But I've, I've obviously enjoyed watching it, the, the kind of excitement that you see from players like uh, Maguire when he, he got the winner, or even though I don't like them, Ceballos. Uh, you can see that... The, even though some of this feels like a facade of football, you can still see the genuine joy when, you know, uh, a club at the last minute realize that they've pushed themselves through to the next round. So, yeah, I've, I've definitely enjoyed the return of the FA Cup. Yeah, I think the, the Cup still matters as well. I, 
every year people say like the cup's basically finished and no one really cares about it and then at the foot side people getting over excited and saying the magic of the cup and all this stuff but I think it does still matter if you're Manchester United this season you're pushing to get into the Champions League but if you win the FA Cup that's much more tangible proof that the old Gunnar Solskjaer thing is working if you're Arsenal Mikel Arteta needs to show that he's making progress as well saves your season exactly if you're Man City even they almost need to win all the cups to make up for the fact that they've lost the league. So it matters to everyone. And I think it matters to the players as well, because the FA Cup still has this mystique with it being the oldest cup competition and players have grown up watching the FA Cup. Even if it was more important in the past, I think it's still, it's still vital now. And for a lot of these players, it might be the, the first time they've, they've won silverware or the first time they've played at Wembley. So these landmarks are still really important, I think. Yeah, certainly agree. If Pochettino had won an FA Cup, for example, a random one in like 2017, would we have had more confidence going into the Champions League final? Maybe. Like, it's it's hard to discount them the way that some do, um, because it's obviously, as you say, it's tangible proof of success. It's a way to to notch yourself in the history books. Um, is it the most important trophy? It's a very pointless conversation to have. It's a trophy, um, and there are only so many of those on offer per year. So, yeah, very much in agreement with you uh, in that regard. All right, we will take a break and then be back with club-specific questions for our guest. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. All right, and we are back. Jamie, we'll start with you because, again, uh, you're the, yes. the, the I guess you're first. You knew it. You <laughs> I was knew just it was thinking, coming. I'm getting a lot of airtime this week. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice, right? I, I do like it when it's smaller shows because you can like flesh things out a little bit more. Uh, but maybe this topic is going to be a little bit less fun. Um, we just have to talk about it, and then we can move on to the actual football. The White Lives Matter banner that flew over the Etihad, um, I know, uh, in the past, and we've talked about on other shows, that uh, people have tried to bring this up. Uh, some about Burnley fans and whether or not that's an accurate description of the fan base, which I assume is a no from you, but just w- what was your take on that as a Burnley fan, seeing something like that on, on there? Well, firstly, it was incredibly disheartening and dispiriting, even upsetting. I just felt sad when I saw it to see my club link with something like that. Um, I think... Um, I, I didn't even see it. Someone sent me a picture of it on WhatsApp. I didn't see it during the game when it was being shown. And you just feel sad that it's your club that's being like dragged through the mud like that. Um, I do think that the reaction from the club was very good. Um, we've been a bit slow to react to things sometimes, but we had a statement out at half-time, which was very good. 
Ben Mee spoke extremely well on television, the captain, right at the end of the game. Sean Dyche spoke well about it as well. There was then another statement from the club the day after. So in terms of reacting to it and condemning it, I think we did everything right. But it it just draws attention to the club in, in a way that we don't want to see. Um, opposition fans already love to call Burnley Brexit FC or go wrongly, by the way. They don't have any black players. It's all white players. It's factually inaccurate to say that it's an entirely white squad, but I'd like to say about the club. So I think it just, it's a real shame to see us painted in such a negative light. Um, but hopefully the reaction has shown that that's not what the team's about. It's not what the club's about. It's not what the fans are about. There's a really good initiative that fans on Twitter came up with called Clarets Against Racism, where they came up with a video that was then shown on social media and might have even been on television. The club certainly shared it on their Twitter account where fans were showing um, banners and displays saying Black Lives Matter and saying Black Lives Matter. I think that was a really important show of unity. Um, and hopefully it's something that we can move forward from. Obviously, the, the Black Lives Matter movement is so important. When something like this happens, it denigrates all the hard work that's being done around the world to raise awareness of these issues. Um, and hopefully we can just use this as a springboard to educate people. But I have to say, some of the reaction to it indicates that people don't want to be educated. They're not interested in learning about Black Lives Matters is important. They just want to have their stupid, ignorant views and stick to them. So I think it's it's dispiriting and I wish it wasn't Michael, but I wish it just hadn't happened, to be honest. Yeah, as you say, Burnley came out with about as firmly worded a message at halftime as you could expect. So yeah, full, full credit in that regard. I also wanted to talk about um, Burnley's form since the restart, which has been a bit up and down. Obviously, that first loss was a big one, 5-0 to Manchester City. Uh, so as we kind of transition from the talk of the banner to the match, do you think that that might have had any impact on that match or was it just City were at their best and Burnley weren't? I think it's tricky because you don't want to say if the banner hadn't been there, Burnley would have won the game. We lost 5-0 at City last year. We lost 5-0 at City the year before. 5-0 at City is a fairly standard result. However, the players did say that they were aware of the banner. Apparently, they knew that it was going to happen before the game. So they were maybe even looking out for it, expecting it. Um, the club apparently had awareness and had tried to stop it as well, but hadn't enough time or weren't able to or whatever. So I think there was certainly an impact. You could certainly tell from the way Ben Mee spoke about it afterwards that players were affected by it. They were as sad and upset as all of us fans as well. They'd obviously... They're taking the knee thing to show the unity that everyone in the league has been doing and to have something like that overshadow it, the result almost became irrelevant. So I think it probably did have an impact. Whether we'd have got a result if it hadn't happened is very difficult to say. We'd have probably lost anyway. Um, the squad is extremely stretched with injuries, contract situations, which we'll probably come on to, but it meant that Dash basically had 11 players to put out and then couldn't even fill his bench. So we were up against it as it was, but yeah, it probably did have an impact. All right, then you go on uh, and host Watford, end up winning 1-0, but Watford, as you said, did not look particularly up for it. If we had to like kind of find the, the middle ground between how poor you were against City and then playing better against Watford, which do you think is probably more indicative of your season thus far and more projecting for the rest of the season? 
I think they, they bust them up by season. I mean, we've had some really bad results against the big teams. Um, and I think that's probably been the case for a lot of teams like Burnley. The gulf seems to be bigger. We've had results before where we've um, gone to Chelsea and won on the opening day, for example, or we've beaten Liverpool at home a couple of years ago. Or This season we went to Man United and won, even though everyone seems to beat Man United these days, so it's not that big a deal anymore. Um, but it seems to be becoming rarer for us to be able to pull off those results. And I get the feeling we're going into those matches now as almost damage limitation sometimes. Um, contrastingly, our record against teams below us in the league is extremely good. So when we had Watford at home, it's obviously a very winnable game. They're right near the bottom. And even though the squad is still very stretched, I was quite confident that we'd have a reaction. That's been another trend of the Sean Dyche era, that when we have a bad result and a bad performance, we tend to bounce back. So I think it was really positive that we did that against Watford. We didn't play amazingly, but we were comfortably the better side. Probably should have been 2 0 up at half time. Josh Brownhill missed a couple of good chances. Brownhill's just coming into the side now, so can't really judge him too harshly. Making the step up after joining for Bristol City in the Championship in January, so he's only started these two Premier League games. This is all a step up for him, so can't criticise him too much. And he was involved in the winner as well, so um, signs that he's going to be a positive addition. We really needed just one spark and as it's been most often this season, that was why McNeil put in a fantastic cross. Jay Rodriguez was an excellent header, so probably the best move of the game came and produced a goal. So there wasn't a lot in it, but I think we certainly deserve to win. And I think if we can go on and replicate that performance, we'll probably do okay in the last few games. It's going to be a challenge for us because we're not going to be able to rotate as much as other teams. We've seen managers making half a dozen changes. Obviously, games coming thick and fast. You're playing every three, four days sometimes. Whereas we're pretty much going to have to play the same 11 battles for maybe all the games or make one or two changes here or there. So it's going to be tough. I think we can still finish in the top half. That would be a good aim. Dreaming about Europe as we were before the break, that's probably off the table now just because of the, the injuries and the players that we've lost due to contracts. So I think that's going to be difficult, but still fairly confident that we can finish the season reasonably well. Yeah, and you mentioned the the lack of depth there. Probably not too thrilling for Sean Dyche, although <laughs> lineup adjustments maybe not always uh, his forte there. But rumors bubbling up that he might be considering moving on. Do you think those are more uh, genuine frustrations with the club or more just trying to get the funds in to make sure he has the players next year to to avoid these kinds of situations where he has a bench with a whole bunch of players that, that aren't really part of the senior squad? I think it is probably a bit of both. Um, some of the quotes that came out before the City game, I think it was, were probably as strong in their criticism of the board and the chairman as anything that he said while he's been at Burnley. Um, afterwards, he did say, if this is the worst that it's been in seven and a half years at the club, then I think it's actually going okay because you have other managers taking pot shots all the time. That's not really Dash's style. Um, I think his criticisms were valid, though. Um, we've lost five players, is it, at the end of their contracts? They were either unwilling to extend for the extra months or the club didn't offer them. Um, but the flip side is that there's probably only Jeff Hendrick of the players that left that really deserved a new contract. 
but it was a tricky one. I think Dash's point was that he's been pushing for players like Hendrik to get the extensions and have them committed for a while, and it seems like there's been inaction from the board. But then you look at it from the other side, and it's so uncertain, isn't it? The finances and things like that, we don't know what the situation is going to be next season. So I understand why the board were cautious um, and maybe didn't try as hard as they could have to kept, to have kept Hendrik. But also, maybe Jeff Hendrik just didn't want to sign. Like, if a player doesn't want to sign, there's not that much he can do. So I think it was frustrating for him that going into a game not knowing which players are available is obviously a nightmare. Um, and that meant we couldn't fill the bit fill the bench against City because we just didn't have the bodies but I can kind of see it from the club's point of view in that there's going to be a lot of players out of contract this summer there will be chances to replenish the squad I think it was bad luck that a lot of teams have spent the break getting players back fit whereas we seem to have lost more players to injury which is confusing and annoying um, but having Chris Wood, Ashley Barnes Johan Goodmanson and Robbie Brady all out, that would be a reasonably good front four for a lot of Premier League teams, and they've all been injured. So mm. it's been tough. Um, but I think it is probably Dash just having a bit of a tantrum, trying to squeeze up his budget for next season. Because um, the flip side is, like, where would he go? There's probably not going to be... Not Everton. <laughs> Well, exactly. Everton should have appointed him twice already, I think. So there's been a lot of talk about Crystal Palace, but Roy Hodgson's got another year on his contract. So that's not a situation that's going to be open anytime soon. West Ham, there's been talk about, but they might well try and keep David Moyes for another year. So, yeah, I think it's um, it's obviously concerning for supporters because Dash has been such a good manager. He's been here a long time. The club have had a mixed record, let's say, in recent years with appointing managers. Everyone remembers when we gave Brian Laws the job in the Premier League, which was ridiculous and bizarre. So there's genuine fears that if he went, we'd then make a hash of appointing a replacement. And I think there's a feeling that the club has been dragged up to a level that probably above where most people would expect them to be. Um, so there are concerns, but I, th- I think it's just Daesh airing some frustrations that have been around for a while. If he's not in charge on the opening day of next season, I would be very surprised. Yeah, absolutely. Fair enough. Uh, you got any questions about Tottenham before we move on to Player Watch? Yeah, so the thing I noticed this week was uh, Jose Mourinho having his tantrum about the Harry Kane comments <laughs> when he got the he got the maths spectacularly wrong on mm-hmm. Didier Drogba's record. Yep. But I, my reaction was that it seemed to hit a nerve because I thought it was accurate criticism. Obviously, Kane's not fully fit yet, but watching Kane in a Mourinho Spurs team, it doesn't look right to me. It doesn't seem to be getting the service that he'd like. The team's not going to be set up to create a lot of chances. It's going to be quite a defensive setup, I think. So what's your view on the Kane-Mourinho situation? Obviously, Kane's an elite striker, but is he going to fit in with the way Mourinho wants to play? He's not like a a line leader, is he? He's not like a mm. Drogba or a Diego Costa. He doesn't have that physical strength and presence that's going to bully defenders. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's not as physical as those two, but he, he's not uh, a lightweight at the top of the line. It's just, I think, uh, because his passing is so strong, which I feel like a lot of people miss sometimes, 
um, that sometimes his value is sitting back a little bit further. And especially now that we have Sun and Bergvine or Lucas on the wings and we have pace in those areas, that sometimes him sitting back and then playing people uh, in front of him is where we can be more dangerous. Uh, you're not wrong. I mean, Mourinho teams um, oftentimes worry about the defense first, and he has gone on record recently as saying that's what he's trying to do right now. That's why we're only seeing one of Lacelso or Ndombele is uh, we need to have a defensive midfielder next to those two. And then hopefully next year there will be a true defensive midfielder brought in to, to kind of anchor that. Um, I think the other big thing that we're seeing, regardless of whether or not it was Mourinho, is the absence of Ericsson. Because if we were still playing a 4-2-3-1 and it was Ericsson behind Kane, he would get a lot more chances than he will with Deli Ali, who would far prefer to, to dribble his man, maybe try for quick flicks, one-twos. Uh, but it, it leads to a lot of attacking moves ending very abruptly the way that he plays. Um, as opposed to kind of the the vision and passing that that Erickson boasted. So right now, almost all of the chances that Kane is going to get are going to be from Aurier's right foot. And Aurier, while being a... hmm, He's improved a lot this season. I will give him that. But that can't be your primary form of attack. Uh, Lacelso is starting to drive through the midfield uh, even more than he did at the start of the season. So at times it kind of looks 4-3-3-E, if, if you'll forgive whatever the heck that language was, um, with one of them staying back and then it's also driving forward uh, to match up with Delielli. So there might be an opportunity soon for him to do that. Uh, when Ndombele plays, he can obviously pick out a really good ball uh, through to Kane. But I think if there's like really a, a big issue here, it's that the team is no longer set up to, to suit Harry Kane, and there's not a player that can do it on his own. Because I think in either situation, if the tactics favored him but the personnel didn't, he'd still get chances. And if the personnel favored him and the tactics didn't, he'd still get his chances. But we're like in this weird neutral space where Delielli just can't be your primary creator, and currently he is. Um so I don't particularly blame Mourinho, uh, save for the shoddy penalty. Have basically had two clean sheets since the return, which is much better than we had been previously. We'd only had four on the season uh, before the one against West Ham. So if his idea is we'll sort out the defense, Kane just has to make do with what he gets from Sun when he's up there, or Aurier when he gets up on the right and just whips in a cross. We can live with that through next season. Even if we won the rest of our matches, we could still get stuck in 6th or 7th. Um, so I think the idea is just shore up the back, give them the confidence. It looks like Dyer and Sanchez are going to be his uh, preferred pairing, which is surprising with, with Toby on the bench. But it does give us a bit more um, pace at the back. Uh, which he was very concerned about with the Manchester United match. Called it out specifically that Dyer would have a better chance against Rashford and Martial. Um, but yeah, I think the idea is get the defense fixed this year, then try to figure out the attack next year. You're, I mean, you're absolutely right, as is everybody that's criticized Kane for the last year and a half. He just hasn't really looked the same since he forced himself to come back early for the Euros. But he doesn't have to be at his best to still score lots of goals. And while Mourinho apparently is not super great at statistics, that's more of a Joe Sacramento job. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think he'll be fine. Will he do the mercen- Will he score twenty or twenty-five goals next year? I, I I would never bet on him scoring less than twenty. Obviously, it's going to be the case this year with him having missed uh, three months of actual play and then an extra three because of the COVID suspension. But uh, yeah, I I understand that it's going to be weird that Harry Kane is no longer the focal point. Um, for us in attack at least until next season but he'll get plenty of goals I'm not worried about it what I would be worried about is if it frustrates Kane and then he moves on and then we have to bring in somebody worse to fulfill that role who is less good at taking the chances that they will get 
yeah. but but for now, I, I'm I'm not too worried about it. And Kane did miss a lot of shots last last match, which you might be wondering why I said that with a happy face on, uh, and it's because he was actually getting shots off, which yeah. up until that point he had not done in quite some time. So, yeah, you aren't going to find many strikers with with a better finish on them. So. Yes, he's not going to get the chances that he probably wants or deserves, but he'll still take a fair chunk of them. I just think with Kane, when he when he starts sort of going looking for the ball, that's a bit of a red flag for me because yes, his passing is really good, but you don't really want Harry Kane playing in midfield because if Harry Kane's playing in midfield, Harry Kane's not in the box putting the ball in the back <laughs> of the net. That's what he's for. I actually yep. think I kind of think if if Spurs are going to make the Mourinho Thing work and this is still a big doubt. It's early days, but it's a big doubt whether or not it'll work. Sign I almost, and Matic. <laughs> I well, I almost think it would be better to cash in on Kane and buy a striker more suited to being a Mourinho striker because I don't think it's the right fit. Obviously, like Kane will always score goals, but if you're talking about Tottenham being a team that can challenge for titles. I'm not sure all the Kane Mourinho partnership is one that's really going to work long term. The flip side is, as we keep saying, that the transfer market is going to be all over the place. How many clubs could even afford Kane? There's a lot of talk about Man United, but it doesn't look like they need a striker now. Mason Greenwood's coming through. So options for a player of that quality are always going to mm. be limited. There's probably only half a dozen realistic options. Um, but. <laughs> It sounds mad to say of someone who's been Spurs' best player for probably three years, mm. but I don't think it would be a terrible plan to if you got the right money for him and brought in the right replacement, it could make the team better as yeah. a Mourinho team. You know what I mean? I do, although I think Tottenham are very confident <laughs> that Harry Kane will be at Tottenham longer than Jose Mourinho. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... well, I think that's a solid bet. <laughs> so I'm not really sure if they would make a long-term choice based on uh, Mourinho's short-term goals. In fact, the hiring of Mourinho, and I was saying this at the time that he was hired when everybody's like, why is it Mourinho? Is that we still have most of our core from the Pochettino years right now. Ericsson left, obviously. Dembele left while Poch was still here. But I think the idea is bring in Mourinho for a year and a half. See if with Toby still here, with Deli still here, Kane, Son, etc. Can you get trophies out of this team before they all leave? And so I genuinely think that's the intent, is get the most out of what's left. And then if we win something, I think then a lot of those players would be able to leave uh, with well wishes. And if we don't, then he'll be gone, and then maybe we can sell them on whoever the next project is, but probably unlikely for somebody like Kane at that point. Um, but yeah, I, we're probably asking for somewhere between 150 and $200 million for Harry Kane for a player that's been out of form for over a year. Like, we won't lower our price because that's how much he's valuable to us. Also, we're starting to, to struggle with homegrown issues. Uh, and that's probably not what he's worth to anybody else either. So, I mean, it, it's... It's possible that that would be one way to generate revenue, but really what I think, especially with all the news coming out that next year the idea is defensive midfielder and Dombele and Lacelso, is that you'll notice that in a midfield three, that means there's no Deli Ali in there. And I think he could probably be had for an amount of money that people would actually be willing to pay. Um, he's still young enough that they can probably think they can still turn him around because he hasn't really been at his best since the turn of the year. Um, but if we were looking to generate revenue, maybe sell him and bring in somebody like, oh, Bruno Fernandez, who we had the chance to sign, but instead <laughs> chose Lo Celso. And Lo Celso has been great for us. But 
it brought us another central midfielder when what we needed was an attacking midfielder with Erickson leaving. So I think if we if we sold Deli Ali and brought in his traditional 10, we'd be in a much better place. Um, because then, like I said, just the relationship between a traditional 10 and Kane, I think, would get things churning a bit more. But it really feels like we're aiming for this 4-3-3 counter with pace thing. And as you say, it's not really going to be Kane's game. But he did score one of those against West Ham this week. So maybe fingers crossed in that regard. Uh, all right, we'll move on to Player Watch now, where I was just curious uh, to hear from you who's put in the most surprising performances, good or bad, for Burnley since the restart. Yeah, I was trying to think about this when you, you sent me the rundown earlier, and I, I was really struggling because there's been two games, and like we said, one, everyone was terrible, and one, everyone was pretty good. Um, and I think the Burnley team is so set that there's not really any surprises from anyone. Um, but having said that, I think Mate Vidra has started really well, um, considering this is a guy who, at the start of the season, wasn't going to get a kick. There was a lot of speculation that he could sign for Rangers or go anywhere. <laughs> but he stuck around and got his chance at Southampton when someone else went off injured, Chris Wood, I think, um, and ended up scoring a very good goal in that game. I think the key thing with Vidra is that he's really bought into what Dyche wants from a striker, which is phenomenal work rate, first and foremost. So even at the end of the Watford game, when he'd had very little service, he um, ran onto a ball over the top and forced a save from the goalkeeper. This was with less than five minutes to go. And then even in injury time, he was chasing down defenders, leading the press from the front. So I think for, for someone who Burnley fans probably didn't expect to see a lot of, the fact that Barnes and Wood have been injured and Vidra has started both games, I think he needed that run of games, a bit of confidence. Um, a couple of goals is always good for a striker and it now looks like there is a player in there it looks like Vidra could be a Premier League striker whereas until until that Southampton game just before lockdown I don't think anyone would have expected him to be here probably next season I think we just kept him around as emergency cover and it turned out that we actually needed him because there was an emergency (laughs) so yeah and I really like him I think he offers something different he's probably quicker than our other strikers um He's got his one very good move where he puts the defender on one leg and then chops inside and hits it really early. And that's worked a couple of times already. Um, I don't know if teams will work that out. Similar to, remember when Igalo was at Watford and he had his chop and scored a load of goals because no one could stop it. And then suddenly everyone could stop it and he didn't score any more goals. (laughs) So that might happen to Vidro. But at the minute I'm enjoying watching him, I think... Brings a fresh dimension to our play, having two strikers that like the ball over the top or to feet. We're not playing as long ball as normal, which is good because it's quite often not good to watch. So, yeah, I've enjoyed Vidra. And from the flip side, Matt Lowton has probably not been great. A lot of fans think he's a bit heavy. Um, I think, I also think, though, it's inevitable that after that three months off, all Cubs fan bases were going to have one player that they went, He's got fat. He is fat. <laughs> that was just inevitable. Everyone was going to have one. So I don't know if it's fair that ours is Matt Lowton, but with Phil Bardsley having been the one that has renewed his contract, I wouldn't be too surprised if Bardsley was back in the team before too long. It seems like Dash prefers Bardsley to Lowton. Yeah, for Tottenham, the, the player that I've been pleasantly surprised by is Eric Dyer. 
Obviously, we've had this like three-year experiment of is he a midfielder? I was actually at the very first match that he uh, ever tried in defensive midfield as I was covering the MLS All-Star Game versus Tottenham Hotspur in Colorado. Uh, I was going to say weird flex, but I'm not even sure that's a flex. Um, <laughs> terrible he was, flex. <laughs> he, was, he was really terrible in midfield as well. So it's, it's a kind of weird thing to bring up. Like 10 minutes in, he was already gassed and, and couldn't catch up with anybody. Uh, and then nothing changed for three years. Um, but uh, obviously, Jose Mourinho came in, basically told him, we're going to need you at center back. Because as badly as we need a true defensive midfielder, he was like, yeah, that ain't it. Um but yeah, so starting Dyer at, at center back, he's actually looked really good with Davinson Sanchez, where I think the concern would have been that neither Dyer nor Sanchez have particularly great awareness off the ball, uh, which for center backs is a lot of a match, for those that don't know. Um, so uh, Davinson Sanchez often loses people off of his back shoulder. Uh, sometimes Dyer can get caught stepping forward when he shouldn't be. Um, but thus far, it has looked really good since the restart, so... Uh, all credit to him. If he can get anywhere back to how good he was in his first couple of seasons, I think that would be fantastic news for us because with Foyth seemingly on the way out, with Vertonghen probably also on the way out, doesn't sound like an extension offer is coming his way, um, we we would have had to dip pretty heavily into the transfer market. Uh, on the Bundesliga show, we were talking about one potential one in Robin Koch. I know uh, Kim Min Jae is also a name being linked um, and somebody from Lille whose name I'm not even going to try. Um, so it sounds like we are still kind of looking, but it will save us a lot of money if Eric Dyer, a player that we already have on not tremendously high wages, um, can really turn his his uh, <laughs> crap around. Eric Dyer is also really helpful at the minute with like, there's no ball boys, is there? So whenever the ball goes in the stand, just Eric Dyer can <laughs> just go send him off for it. Uh, yeah. We've never heard anything, by the way. About about whether or not there's a suspension coming his way. Obviously, Dele Ali had the one that that he got handed for Manchester United, and I don't think we've ever heard anything back about Eric Dyer. I don't remember. No, yeah. I don't remember hearing it. Yeah, so maybe the FA is just like, you know what? Fair enough. Fair enough. He didn't. He didn't really do anything, yeah, which might have been hit anyone. He looked like right. he was going to try to, but he didn't hit anyone. So yeah, the guy ran away and they got cornered by other fans outside the ground anyway. So. Smart, smart there. Um, but uh, yeah, in terms of somebody that's really surprised the bad way, I, this is really cheating, but it has to be Ndombele, who hasn't played a single minute, didn't even warm up during the match against West Ham. Um, our record signing, he's obviously sublime on the ball when he plays, but he just gets exhausted so quickly. He has not yet adapted to the pace of the Premier League. You mentioned players that were hefty. He's actually gotten to, to be quite a bit slimmer through the... Uh, through the break, we've heard that he's been training really well, so just really weird that he hasn't played. Uh, every time he doesn't play, somebody in France says that he wants to leave. Um, don't know if that's coming from his camp or... or... Nah, yeah, it's probably coming from his camp. He's been linked to Barcelona, isn't he? That's got to be an agent planting that. Like, Yeah, you'd imagine. Doesn't make any sense. No, and, and the whole point of coming to Tottenham but... was very similar to Ericsson at the time. Although Ericsson was like 10 million pounds versus Ndombele's 65. Um, but the idea was move to Tottenham, establish yourself as a star in the Premier League, and then get your move to a big club instead of moving to a big club, maybe not living up to your potential, falling down the pecking order in the midfield, and then maybe not fulfilling all that potential that he has. But look, that's already happening. So uh, hopefully he can turn things around because it is really disappointing. Uh, also, just interestingly, uh, Ben Davis who was really good that year that Danny Rose was hurt and crap, um, hasn't really been as, at his best since. 
But basically, we're playing with three at the back. With Davis, who has played as a left center back before in a three uh, for Wales and at other times as well for us. Um, basically tucking inside when Aurier bumps forward on the right. So just an interesting tactical thing. So I, I've, I've yet to judge whether or not I like this uh, from Davis. But like I've said, we've, we've actually held teams to, to precious few chances since the restart. So uh, if, if it's working, why break it? That's not the phrase. Yeah. All right. <laughs> no, it's interesting what you said about Mourinho sort of fixing the defense. That's actually what Dyche did when he first came to Burnley. Hmm. We were conceding a lot of goals, but scoring quite a lot as well. But... The first thing he did was basically tell Kieran Trippier, who obviously ended up at Spurs and then um, Atletico Madrid, he basically told him to stop going over the halfway line because at that point he wasn't athletic enough to get up and down. Mm. So he was a phenomenal threat with his crossing. But if he went forward and we didn't score, then we'd just get caught on the counter all the time because Trippier was too heavy to get back. So Trippier got a lot fitter. He got a lot better defensively. We stopped conceding goals. meant Charlie Austin stopped scoring goals at the other end. But you have to build that foundation. So essentially what I'm saying is Jose Mourinho's just copying show Dash. So that should work out well. Every as everyone has always said, Jose Mourinho <laughs> is just a crap Sean Dash. Exactly. <laughs> All right, we will somehow segue away from that and into match <laughs> previews. Um, we're going to be facing Crystal Palace with Roy Hodgson's seat dangerously hot with Sean Dyche potentially. <laughs> no, I'm not even going to pretend. But yeah, you're playing Crystal Palace. What are you expecting in this match? Yeah, I think um, a lot depends on whether Zaha's going to be fit. He went off injured in the last game, I think, and I haven't seen anything about whether he's going to be available or not. Um, he's obviously their main man, even though he's not been very consistent this season. He's um, maybe sulking a little bit that he didn't get his move last summer when he wanted to go to Arsenal and they didn't have enough money or didn't want him enough, whatever it was. Um, but I've got a lot of admiration for, for Palace. I think Hodgson's done a fantastic job there, considering um, they don't really have a goal-scoring striker. Ben is their striker, and he doesn't score any goals, so... I think Hodgson's team's always very organised, similar to Dash in that way. It's probably not going to be a very exciting match. Um, in the UK, it's on Amazon Prime, um, free to air. So it's going to be really exciting for everyone mm. on Monday night getting to watch Roy Hodgson's Palace against Sean Dash's Burnley. That's really going to pull in the crowds. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it's a, it's an opportunity for us to get Watford um, and at least a draw. I don't think our record against Palace is very good, though. I've certainly seen us lose at Sellers a couple of times. So, yeah, I'd, I'd probably take a point if it was offered, to be honest. Everyone seems to be talking about Palace now as like outsiders for Europe when they're on the same number of points as us. So I'm not yeah. sure how that's happened. Um, but yeah, that, Because they've heard you out. say how much you hate the Europa League. <laughs> yeah, I think that's maybe what it is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, before we got humped by Man City, I think we were probably... Um, the best of the rest, if you want to put it that way. If you count Sheffield United as in the top eight, which they might not be for a lot longer. But you look at the table, if we win the game, we go up three places, I think. Or if we win 20 nil, four places. So, yeah, put your money on 20 nil for Burnley. <laughs> 
<laughs> Worth yeah, a quid. They're not going to probably do that with just uh, better Jose Mourinho on the touchline. Yeah, I don't know if that 20, <laughs> 20 cold mark is yeah, going to be we'll, what happens. We'll probably stop at 15. You're right. Yeah, just 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 to be kind uh, to a Crystal Palace side with four clean sheets in their last five matches. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, Tottenham have Sheffield United. I think that this would have been a much scarier match had there not been this crazy COVID pause with all of their fans and everything and how well they were playing. Um, the, the signing of Sonderberga in, in the January window um, seemed to really bolster them even further. Hurt Lundstrom's FPL ratings, granted, but uh, they were they were just absolutely flying um, through the underlap, TM. Um, but obviously they've been really, really struggling since the restart. They get kind of jobbed out of a win against Aston Villa, uh, and then I don't think they picked up a win since in any competition, including the, the loss to Arsenal today in the Cup, even though uh, they scored an 87th minute equalizer if memory serves um and then allowed Zabias to score at the other end which I mentioned earlier so I really don't know if there's a better time to play them they have to be thoroughly demoralized by how the restart has gone uh and meanwhile we we I was gonna say have to win but it kind of doesn't matter even if we do our best through the rest of the season like I said we could just get trapped behind a resurgent Manchester United and Wolves who have basically nobody of note left to play um Burnley obviously Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, Burnley. You know what? I would deeply appreciate your help in that match. So I'm not even going to make a joke. Um, but uh, yeah, so in this one, I'm I'm feeling pretty confident. I think things are starting to click. We've mentioned the defense getting better. Kane starting to, t- to take more shots. Um, we haven't really seen that much from Sun uh, since the restart. Um, so Hopefully he can get going. I, it has to be Bergvine over Lucas on the right. We need to stop doing that. Lucas at 60 minutes when everybody's tired and he's seven times faster than everyone on the pitch is great. <laughs> when he plays from the start of the match, he's like, can I beat seven men in a row? And the answer is no. And then he does it till he gets hooked on like the 50th minute. Um, you think he's, he's a Dama Traore? Very oh. similar, except Lucas is roughly half the size of a Dama Traore exclusively with every wise. person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, but uh, anyway, so yeah, it has to be Bergvine on the right. My guess is it's going to be Sissoko, Lacelso, and Deli again as the midfield three, even though it's air quotes of 4-2-3-1. And then the back line has to write itself based on how we've performed thus well, which is going to lead to some really awkward storylines, man. After Toby finally got his big money extension, um, him sitting on the bench, as I mentioned, that means Ndombele on the bench again. We're uh, we're landing on the Mourinho period where he's playing all the players that he trusts, and that's going to leave some pretty big-name players on the outs, which, of course, he's certainly no stranger to either. So get ready for all the narratives and everything, but I do think he's probably right at this point that, that our best 11 is our best 11, as long as it's Bergvine over Lucas on the right. All right, that'll do it for us today, Jamie. An absolute pleasure just talking about the Premier League with you for an hour. If you'd like to tell folks where they can find you, now would be a good time. Yeah, uh, you can get me on Twitter at JamieSmithSport and listen to the, the Bundesliga podcast even though the season's finished. So there's not going to be many more episodes, but you can always <laughs> listen to the old ones and look at the old results so that it makes sense. Um, not fill some time if you're struggling in lockdown, you could do that. <laughs> yeah uh, both of us as you said on the bundesliga show at bundesliga pod definitely go check it out it's uh 
me, Jamie, and Jim, all of whom you're probably aware, Jim, of Leicester City fame, uh, and then John McKenzie, who knows more than all three of us combined. <laughs> and Which is not just, difficult. This <laughs> is not difficult. We say very dumb things, and then most of the times he corrects us or gets surprised because I've asked him such an insane question that nobody could have prepared. Um, but yeah, check that out at Bundesliga Pod. We also have the Championship Pod back up and running again, so check that out at Championship Pod, uh, where we hear about how West Brom did their best to, to screw themselves out of automatic promotion, but Leeds helped them out by beating Fulham, who, of course, are in third there. Uh, and, yeah, as always, you can follow us at EPL Roundtable. You can find us uh, also at EPL Index. And then I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, on Twitter, at Kevroff. Jamie, an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. It was a pleasure as always, and we hope you keep listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.